Well, I'm glad all of us are here this morning, and I want to uh, especially welcome the first-time visitors. Uh, we've not said a lot about this uh, 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 President Clinton uh, deal um, because I never want the agenda of the church to be run by uh, the lives of uh, any politician, no matter who it is. But Scripture is very clear about us praying uh, for our leaders. It says in 1 Timothy uh, uh chapter 2, uh, verses um, 1 through 4, it says, I urge that entreaties and prayers uh, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. Uh, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a recognition of the truth. Um, we need to pray uh, about the testimony that's going to be given tomorrow. We need to pray uh, not only for uh, our president that he would uh, uh, tell the truth and come to a recognition of the truth, but that all of us could recognize the truth of God and the freedom that comes with that truth. So let's pray for him and for all who are concerned right now. Lord, we do pray that the truth would be told, that the truth would, would be recognized, be brought into the light, because only then can we know um, how to deal with what we're going through. You have said that the truth would make us free. We know by experience that repentance also makes us free. Integrity makes us free. And we desire that for all who are concerned in this very sordid mess. Lord, we don't pray judgment. We pray compassion. President Clinton and Mrs. Clinton and Chelsea and Monica Lewinsky are all people. They're not media figures. And you love them. And you want them to have the fullness that can only come with Jesus Christ and the freedom that can only come with the truth. So, Father, that's what we pray for them. And that's what we pray for all of us. Give all of us the recognition of the truth that sin always costs more than you think it's going to. And deceit always involves more hurt than you think it ever will. Help us all to be recoiled by that prospect, not just in their lives, out of our love for them, but in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Okay. Welcome. Well, it's nice to see some new faces here this week. For those of you who uh, are new, let me introduce myself. I am Dr. T. Thomas Terry Wiggle, MD, PhD, DDS. I'm sure you've all read my books. Um, I've forgotten more than you'll ever know. And Love and Other Black Holes. Well, we begin each session here by introducing ourselves, followed by the phrase, I wish I knew as much as the next guy. Janet, why don't you start? Okay. <clears throat> I'm Janet, and uh, I wish I knew as much as the next guy. 
Hi, I'm Fred, and I wish I knew as much as the next guy. Hi, I'm Hank, and I wish I knew as much as the next guy. I'm Linda, and I wish I knew as much as the next guy. Hi, I'm the next guy. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, who'd like to start? <clears throat> oh, don't be shy. Well, I, I guess I have a question. Fred, yes, go ahead. What's your question? Well, you know, sometimes when I look at my girlfriend, I just, I just don't feel anything. I, I don't know. I don't feel any love, I guess. Mm-hmm. 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 Go on. That's it. Oh. Ah, <clears throat> so, Fred, um, you've lost that loving feeling. <laughs> and it's gone. <laughs> gone. <laughs> gone. Well, yes, yes, right. And you can't go on. Fred, you see how easy that was to recognize? The question is, what do you do next? Well, I don't know. Break up with her, I guess. Oh, breaking up is hard to do. Yeah, you're right. But you know, I've got to do it. Thanks, Doc. Oh, of course. <laughs> next. I'm sorry, but I also have a little love problem. Linda, love means never having to say you're sorry. Wow. <laughs> Can I quote that? Sure. What's your uh, question, uh, Linda? Well, I'm sort of interested in two different guys, and I, I don't know which one I really like. Mm. Torn between two lovers. You're feeling like a fool. Yes! Loving both of them is breaking all the rules. Yes, yes, you're right. Thank you so much. No, of course. You know, Linda, you might also try reading chapters six and seven of my brand new book, Everything I Really Need to Know I Taught Myself. I will. Okay, I will. Hank, would you like to share with us? Me? Yes, go ahead. I don't know. Oh, come now. No, I, I really don't know. I'm, yeah. I see. Yeah. Day after day, you're more confused. Yes. You look for the light in the pouring rain. Yes. Rhythm and rhyme and harmony. You're feeling the pain. Yes, Dr. Terry Wiggle, that's exactly how I feel. Oh. I know. Wow, you are good. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh, our time's running short. Janet, why don't you uh, share with us now? No, that's all right. I just. Oh, I, uh, come, 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 come. No, come. I really don't have anything Janet? to say. Janet? Yes. You are a rock. I am? You are an island. I am. And a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. No! <laughs>
Oh. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. I feel pain. I cry. I'm just confused about this love thing. All of it. The whole enchilada. I, I don't know. I mean, what is love? Huh? Can you tell me? Yes. <sighs> Some say love. It is a river that drowns the tender reed. Some say love, it is um, a razor that, that, that leaves the soul to bleed. But love is a rose. A rose? But you better not pick it. No? It only grows when it's on the vine. The vine? A handful of thorns and you know you've missed it. Missed it? Oh my, we're out of time. Well, I expect to see all of you here again next week, same time. Oh, if I could save time in a bottle. <laughs> well, except for you, of course, Linda. Enjoy your vacation. Uh, thanks. How did you know I was going on vacation? Oh, I heard it through the grapevine. You know what's really scary about that? <laughs> that resembles so much of the Christianity I see that purports to be wise, but is really only cliché. It purports to be profound, but it's really only platitude. We're entering a whole new training for ministry in a whole new arena of life. Now, you know that all this year we're talking about being salt and light in the world. We're talking about living holy lives, and holiness is that not of ourselves. It's only the nature of God in us. And we've talked so far about what it means to be ministers in our family out there, ministers at our work out there, ministers to our friends out there, uh, ministers uh, in our leisure time, in sports and, and, and uh, uh, in entertainment. Now we come to a whole new arena of education because we spend a lot of our time hopefully learning. And very many of you are either, have either just gone back to school or you're going back to school. And you want to know, okay, so what's the deal with school? How, how do I make a difference at school? And how do we make a difference with a ministry of knowledge? Well, the point is that we've got to go way beyond what is easy. We've got to go way beyond using the Bible to avoid problems and rather use Scripture to dig deeper. You see, God calls us to the kind of competence intellectually that would say to us, you can't pretend that just because you're a Christian, you know more than everybody else. 
You can't pretend just because you know Jesus Christ is Lord that you're going to go swooping into wherever you are, as Andy suggested, and solve everybody's problem. You'll get eaten for lunch. You know why? Because the world doesn't care if you know Jesus Christ. The world only cares if you know your stuff, if you're competent in what you're trying to accomplish. And that only comes incrementally. I hope that we have all thrown out the illusion that any single enlightenment is really going to give us wisdom. I hope that we threw that out with the garden because that was exactly the temptation of the forbidden fruit. Just do this, you'll be smart as God. And all of us look for that magic bullet that's going to make us smart as God. But the realistic part of post-garden life is that we only learn incrementally. Even Christ only learned incrementally. God with skin on. It says, as a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 2, we know very little about the childhood of Jesus Christ. Very little. Only given just a, a, a one picture, really. But it says that after he was presented at the temple, it describes his childhood thusly. Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it says this. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. And the very next scene is the only scene we have of him as a young boy, where he is at the temple, and he is dialoguing with the elders. And he's saying what he knows, and he's learning what they know. And then it sums up the growth of Christ in verse 52 with exactly the same words. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom. Now, if there is a ministry we have in the ministry of education, it starts with this. You've got to learn incrementally. You've got to go through the work of what it takes to learn what you have to know. If Jesus Christ, who was God with skin on, could only learn incrementally, what does that mean for you and I? We can only learn incrementally. Bit by bit, we increase in wisdom. And that's exactly what God tells us to do. God doesn't expect to, us to know it all. He doesn't ask, expect us to have the attitude of knowing it all. As a matter of fact, the Bible has just the opposite picture. The Bible, the, our, our memory verse this week was Proverbs 18, 15. The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks it out. That's the picture of who God wants us to be. Did you ever notice that the people who are always talking and always trying to teach really are those that know the least? You know why that is? Because the most competent people in the world are the best students. The smartest people in the world are always those who are ready to learn and learning in every situation. That's the definition of being smart. You're smart because you're a good learner. I, I've, been, I've been working out in gyms for, for 25 years, and I've noticed something. There, there occasionally is a person in every one of these gyms who spends most of their time going around trying to teach everybody else how to lift weights. And I've noticed the characteristic of these people. There are really two. Number one, they're usually grossly out of shape. And number two, they're just trying to avoid a workout themselves. As long as you're talking, you don't have to do. 
It's never the guy with the huge muscles who's ripped, who's going around instructing people. Now, if you look like you're going to hurt yourself, which I usually do, they come over and say, no, you probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> They're kind. They'll save you. But, but they, don't, they don't just go. You know why? Because they're working incrementally to get better. And that's what God calls us to do. You know why he calls us to do it? Because God expects us to have dominion in this world. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, this order for human beings, it says, and God blessed them and said to them, that's to us, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, I know those of you who have been listening to Eastern philosophy think that's just Western arrogance, that we could pose as the boss. And so you, you get nervous when you listen to this. Well, you ought to get nervous, but you ought not to throw it out because these are the words of God. Subdue it. Subdue it, not so that you can be boss, but so that you can be servant. Not so that you can use it, but so that you can be stewards of it. But the order comes, nonetheless, you are to have dominion in this world. Now, very practical question. If we're to have dominion in this day and age, in this time, how do we gain dominion? And the answer is, very simply, you've got to know your stuff. You've got to be competent in what you do. Knowledge is the lingua franca of the day. It is the most valuable commodity, and it is the avenue to influence. Now, the world has not always been like that. Power and influence in the past has come through different venues. Um, J. Wallace Hamilton points out that in every age, there have been heroes escalated according to the crisis of the age, according to the need of the age. We have gone through periods of military turmoil. And therefore, the, the people that we escalate as heroes, the people who we talk most about, happen to be warriors or generals. Even when we went through Operation Desert Storm, we couldn't stop talking about General Schwarzkopf. He was the hero of the day because we were involved in that type of power. There have been times in the history of this world when power has been exercised by diplomatic gesture, by politicians and statesmen. And you can remember the names of those people. You can remember Churchill. You can remember during the Depression, FDR. You can remember those people. They were elevated to hero status. There have been times in the history of this world when power has been through the venue of great moral leadership. When people have been oppressed and someone has stepped forward to bring them out of that category of living, there was a day when Gandhi was hero. There was a day when Martin Luther King was hero. But today, we are not in military crisis. Today, the main form of power does not come through politicians. Everybody has disregarded that. That, that. that doesn't seem to be the road anymore. And unfortunately, we are not in a time of great moral leadership. 
Today, the main form of power in this world is information. The person who is most likely to be in the papers most consistently is a man by the name of Bill Gates. And it's not just because he's the richest man in the world. He's the richest man in the world because he is the symbol of the transfer of information. And information is the most powerful form of influence of the day. It's not been like that until recently in this country. As a matter of fact, Drucker points out that of all of the rich, influential corporate leaders in the 19th century, only one of them went to college, J.P. Morgan, and he dropped out. It was because in that day and age, wealth and influence and power came by what you could produce. And if you could produce enough goods that were of use to enough people, that's how you exercised influence. The average work year in 1910 was 3,000 hours a year for the average worker. Now, if you figure that out, that comes to just short of 70 hours a week. That was the average work week. The average work week in the past five years for Japan has been 2,000 hours. For America has been 1,800 hours. For Germany has been 1,600 hours. If you figure that out, that's something less than 40 hours a week. But yet, watch this, it's because we can produce 50 times more per hour than we could 80 years ago. So therefore, the power doesn't come with the power of production. We got that down. We've got that down. Only an eighth to a sixth of the percentage of any gross national, national product has to do with the goods and the transfer of those goods. The rest of the power comes from information. That's the huge portion of our gross national product. That's the valuable thing of the day. And so therefore, if God would say to you, I want you to have influence in this world, what would he say to you? Know your stuff. You've got to become people who are competent in things of the world and things of the faith in things of your field and things of the faith, because the people who can do what they do the best will always have the most influence. And if you are a Christian, you will have the influence of Christ because you have performed what the world needed, performed in the best possible fashion. You will never be without influence if you have that. You know that as well as I do. You know that every day. If there's somebody who knows his stuff, that person could even be a little obnoxious, and you still stand him because he knows his stuff. The other, the other night, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Becky and Joel and I went to have dinner with uh, Dr. John McCutcheon. Some of you know him. He's an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and uh, his wife, wonderful wife Suzanne, and his wonderful daughter, daughter Katie. Since Joel has kind of set his cap for the medical field. A couple of the doctors in the, in the uh, uh, congregation have kind of taken him under their wing, and they're trying to uh, get him ready and, 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 and teach him about the medical field. Evidently, the medical field is kind of like a whole world to itself. 
Um, and, and because it takes such study and such intensity and, and such attention. And, and he was explaining to Joel, he said, you know, doctors are curious people. You can, you can almost tell a doctor by their personality. You can almost, you can listen to them for a little while and you can tell exactly what field they're in. And Joel said, well, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. What are they like? And, 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 and Dr. McCutcheon said, he just kind of smiled. He said, well, I think this is what he said. Um, they're kind of a little eccentric. They're, they're, they're kind of a little scattered because, partly because they're so smart and partly because their craft is so focused and so technical and so mechanical uh, that, that, that that requires that kind of concentration. And plus, they have a reputation of having absolutely the lousiest bedside manner. These people are so concentrated on what they're doing, they really don't deal with people very well. I mean, that's the reputation. Most of them don't. And he kind of smiled and he said, when I was doing rounds as a medical student, this is now some decades ago, he said, I made rounds with, with Dr. Sims, who was one of the, one of the foremost uh, neurosurgeons uh, in the country. And, 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 uh, and, and he said, the story on this guy, and supposedly it's a true story, uh, it was that, and this was quintessential to his personality, he was making rounds. Of course, all these medical students are following him, and he goes in, he goes in this patient's room, and we'll call her Mrs. Smith, and he's leafing through the the uh, chart, and he's saying, uh, how are you doing today, Miss Smith? And, and Miss Smith says, oh, doctor, oh, I'm in such pain. I'm going to die today. I'm in such pain. I'm in such pain. I'm going to die today. He said, well, I'll write you out a prescription here. We'll see if it helps. He walks out. <clears throat> Next day, he comes back in the room, looking through the chart. Of course, everybody's following. Look through how are you doing today, Miss Smith? Oh, doctor. There's such pain. I have such pain. I'm going to die today. I'm going to die today of my pain. He said, well, obviously, yesterday didn't help. I'll, just, I'll modify this. We'll see if it helps. Walks out. Comes back. Third day. How you doing today, Miss Smith? You can tell he's just a little irritated. And, and, and she said, oh, doctor, I'm going to die today. I did such pain. I hurt so bad. I'm going to die today. And he looks at her and he says, look, Miss Smith, what you got to do is just pick a day and stick with it. <laughs> now, <laughs> now you wonder, how would the guy with a personality like that have any patience at all? And the answer is, he knew his stuff. They knew when they went to him that they were getting the best possible care. He might be obnoxious, but that didn't matter because he knew what he was doing. Christian, know what you're doing. Have the credibility to know your field so well that your personality, as bad as it could be. Now, this is not an excuse for being obnoxious. There is no excuse for being obnoxious. But know your field that well. There is no excuse for airheaded Christianity. There is no excuse for bubble brains in the faith. Christians ought to be smarter and better at what they're doing than anybody else because they serve a God who is perfect. They serve a God who is omniscient and knows everything. And that is what we can dimly resemble, not in our attitude, but in our learning. We've got to be practical about our Christianity because people really don't care how much of the Bible we can quote. 
People who are non-believers only care, can we fix their problem? That's what they care about. And when we don't get practical, when we don't know our stuff, when we don't learn our field, we are like, what Bishop Kennedy years ago did a, uh, investigated a certain medical memorial fund. And this is what he learned. For every one dollar in that medical memorial fund that was spent on actual research, $20 was spent on flowers. And I thought when I read that, how much like Christianity is that? We spend most of our energy wanting things to seem better, wanting to lift people's spirits, wanting to make things smell better. (laughs) Instead of doing the stuff... Our God calls us to excellence. Now, students, I want to say something to you. I know many of you have gone back to school and you're in, you're in classrooms right now. And I know I, we can all remember what it's like to sit in the classroom and sit, look at that book in front of you and say, now what in the world good is this going to do me in the real world? This, this does not even touch what is relevant in the real world. Why should I learn this stuff? I'm going to tell you tonight why you should learn it. First of all, God has this this deal where he has said, if you are faithful over little, I will set you over much. That is, if you pay attention to what you don't think is very important, and you learn to do what you don't think anybody else thinks is very important, and you learn to do even that with excellence, I will put you over much. I want to tell you, if you learn to be a good student, God will put you in venues of influence that you can't even possibly conceive of right now. Let me show you an example of that. In Daniel chapter 1, there is an account of the people of the world, the Chaldeans, taking over the people of faith, the Jews. And the king of the Chaldeans issues this order, starting in verse 3. The king ordered the chief of his officials to bring in some of the sons of Israel, some of the kids, including some of the royal family and the nobles. Now this is who he wanted. And listen to these qualifications because this is who the world will always want. The world always wants the best. The world doesn't care what you believe. The world just wants the best. Wants, wants the most accomplished, wants the most able, wants the smartest. And so these are the qualifications in verse 4. Youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, that is, they took care of themselves, they cared about even that. I know some makers, oh, it's not the body, it's the spirit that counts. Your body counts too. Your God gave you that body. You take care of that body. It says this. Showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. Endowed with understanding. Discerning knowledge. Who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now I I don't want you to miss this. Who were the people who were put in the choice places of influence in the world of the unbelievers. They were the best students. They were the best students. The names of these youths that were chosen, you will know. Daniel, 
Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. You know those names, don't you? Now you know why you know those names, because they did their homework, because they were excellent students. And because they were excellent students, God put them over much. Some of you sit there and you say, what in the world? I'm studying math, and I want to be a flower person. What's this, what's this ever going to do me? What good, is, what good does math possibly... Let me tell you, math teaches you some of the most important lessons of your life. Let me give you just three. When you're going down your homework page and you're solving one math problem after another, and you're saying to yourself, what does this have to do with real life? You tell me what real life is. It's solving one problem after another. And it's been like that since we got kicked out of the garden. Life is a series of problems. And if you learn to solve one problem after another, you'll be successful in anything you do. Math teaches you that. Math teaches you, if you have an equational form of math, you learn a very important lesson. You learn in an equational form of math that the trick is that the value on this side of the equation must, must match exactly the value on this side of the equation. You know what spiritual principle that is that will last you your whole life long? What you sow, you reap. And that is, that is born into you in equational mathematics. Math also says there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. Oh, there's a revelation. <laughs> we live in a world where people go, eh, well, it's just a matter of opinion. Just a matter of opinion. Let me tell you, for a lot of life, no, it's not. There's a right answer and a wrong answer. I cringe when I hear Sunday school teachers ask a question and any old sloppy answer they get from the students, they'll say, oh, that's good, Johnny. And, and what they're trying to do is boost the kid's self-esteem or make him feel all right about himself. What they're doing is giving him crummy theology. When he's given the wrong answer, the answer is, no, Johnny, that's not the wrong, right answer, but let's get the right answer. Because you're important enough to know the right answer. We have so many biblically illiterate Christians. We have so many Christians who don't know the first thing about the Ten Commandments. They call themselves a Christian. But they're not educated. You haven't been educated because, because the church said, well, anything you want to believe is just kind of, kind of, as long as your heart's in the right place. That's not right. There are people who don't, who don't know the Apostles' Creed. There are people who don't know what the Apostles' Creed means. They think when we say, I believe in the Catholic Church, that I hear people say, every time we say that, we say, you mean we're Catholics? <laughs> no, Catholic with a small c means Universal. It means I believe that wherever Christians are in whatever church, that's the universal church. It wasn't the Roman Catholic Church, not a capital C, till there was a denomination form. And, and, the, and the Eastern Orthodox Catholic, that's a denomination. But Catholic with a small c means universal. So every time we say to people, oh, I didn't know we were Catholic. No, we're not. <laughs> the, the point of this is, the point of this is, there's a right answer and a wrong answer, both in your field and in the faith. And we've got to be sharp enough. We've got to honor God enough to know our stuff. Christians, just like Jeff said, if you didn't have this background, don't be ashamed. You just haven't been taught. But the time is now to learn. You've got to read the Word. You've got to see what the content is. 
It's important to know what's in here. It's important to know that, that you can go back to the bookstore and you can get books on apologetics or, or what that's, that's the word for, for a rational defense of the faith. That you can get catechisms like the Westminster Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism or the 39 Articles and you can go down bit by bit and you can become competent in what you believe intellectually. Let me go on. There are other fields. Science, natural science. Every time you study natural science, I'll, I'll rush through these others. Every time you study natural science, you know you learn one of the most important principles of life. Natural science will teach you the same thing every, every time. What seems like a single entity is really a conglomeration of interdependent parts. Do you know how much trouble we could save, especially with lunk-headed guys going into families, trying to, trying to wonder, why don't I have any freedom anymore? Why can't I live like I used to? The answer is this, because you may think of yourself as a single entity, but God made you to be a conglomeration of interdependent parts. That's what a family is. And when you come to that realization, you understand what life really is. That is the combination that makes for a successful business formula. That is the combination that makes for a successful church. We don't come here just to get fixed personally. We're interdependent parts. When you study the social sciences, you learn the larger patterns of God. When you study literature, oh my goodness, what a world. When you... It teaches you to sustain your concentration until you get to the end because only when you get to the end did you know what the story was all about. How many relationships could we save if we could get that truth into people? Well, I'm just going to give up. I just don't. This doesn't even make any sense to you. You know why? You haven't got to the end yet. You haven't got to the end. You haven't sustained your concentration. You haven't been faithful to that relationship because only at the end will you be able to look back and see what that was all about. This is about life. Your studies are about life. And adults, listen to this. Just because you're not in school doesn't mean you're not students too. We're all students. And if we don't keep learning, we don't represent God very well. And that means in the technical fields, whatever field you're in, if you're an air conditioner guy, you ought to be absolutely the best air conditioner. You ought to know more about air conditioners than anybody else on the face of the planet. And just because you're a critic, don't, get, don't try to get business because you've got a fish on your truck. If you're not going to be the best air conditioner guy, take the fish off your truck. You're bad advertising. we got to know our stuff because we represent a God who knows everything, who is excellent in everything. And when we know our stuff, that is the venue for speaking about deeper and more wonderful things. That was the record of Jesus doing the miracles. People listened to him because he did miracles. And so... Anytime you do anything, anything very well, people will attribute to you other areas of competence. They will come to you and say, well, you're smart. and Answer me this. Because you do one thing well, they will come to you with the deeper questions of life. And that will give you the venue. One story, then I'll sit down.
Lord Moynihan, one of the best surgeons in the history of England. And Lord Moynihan used to operate with a, in a theater surrounded by doctors trying to learn. A very distracting atmosphere because they were all talking. They were all asking questions. And he'd walk in, and he was an artist. I mean, he was an artist. And one day, it was especially noisy and especially distracting, and he was so focused. And after this operation, where everybody had watched his hands, they went up to him, and one person said, How in the world do you sustain your concentration? How do you sustain your focus? when there's so much noise around you. And he looked at him and he said, because when I operate, there are only three people in the room. Me and the patient. They started counting. <laughs> they said, wait a minute, you just named two. Who's the third one? And he looked at him and he said, God. Do you understand? If you make the connection, you get that third venue to speak. Pray with me. God, help us to give ourselves to you totally. Help us not to retreat into easy, brainless, cliche Christianity. Help us to give you what you deserve and serve people in a way that really and practically meets their needs so that the words we have to speak about the deepest and most important parts of life will already have the credibility of listening that they deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.